Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit Occult Confessions and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. It's occultconfessions.com for those Oops. of you I in the UK. I always do that. <laughs> That's all right. We'll keep it. The tulpa has become a staple of Western popular culture and has even taken a role in New Age occultism through the practice of tulpamancers. Tulpas play a prominent role in David Lynch's Twin Peaks series. They appear in The X-Files and Bronies, who are adult male fans of My Little Pony, no judgment whatsoever, have even conjured their own Little Pony tulpas. The Western tulpa is a kind of imaginary friend brought to life. If it gathers enough of its creator's energy, the creature can, like a golem, take on a life of its own. 21st century tulpamancers describe their creations as sharing brain power with their creators, but having their own independent thoughts. So the tulpa thinks for itself. Creator and tulpa actually can't think at the same time. Otto Rank's theory of the doppelganger as a narcissistic emanation comes roaring back in the work of the tulpamancers, but their creations are often described as a positive influence on their mental health. Their sentience and independence render them into companions for their creators, potentially alleviating loneliness and elevating the mood of the tulpamancer, who tulpaed them into being. Tulpamancers have been known to have sex with their tulpas, with the stipulation that no tulpa should be made to feel as though it has been created as a sex doll. Some schizophrenics have assigned tulpas to the voices that haunt them organizing and controlling their influence. They're created in an imagined realm over a period of two to five hundred hours of concentrated effort, and once they're conjured into being, their creator can switch places with them, allowing the tulpa to control their bodies temporarily. Much of the tulpa mysticism is a recent invention, borrowing from theosophy and chaos magic and even esoteric Buddhism, or maybe perhaps especially... Traditionally, the tulpa has been attributed to Tibetan Buddhists. It's true that the Tibetans, drawing on earlier Indian texts, have a concept for a mind-made body, or emanation. But their practice and theology do not come anywhere near what the bronies and their fellow tulpamancers have been up to. The term tulpa is itself a Western invention, and the way it's practiced by New Age tulpamancers is best understood as a Western theosophical practice loosely inspired by Tibetan Buddhism. Today, on Occult Confessions, we try and make sense of the tangled history of the tulpa. You may recognize that laugh every time I say the word brony, now Savannah. That is Savannah Verrett, <laughs> sister just, of the 84th. N- I just never thought that I would hear, like, Tibetan monks and bronies in the same sentence. <laughs> and that they're, like, doing the same sort of magic. And it's so, uh, it's just, it's fun. <laughs> well, I mean... It, I guess they're doing the same sort of magic in the way that, you know, the people on the Great British Baking Show are, are doing the same sort of magic as I am in my kitchen. There's there's a vast difference, really, in what's happening. Uh, but, yes, this episode will will bridge the two. We'll bridge the brony and the Tibetan monk. Finally. <laughs> At long last, the Dalai Lama gets his connection to the brony. <laughs> Uh, so uh, before we get into this, Savannah, uh, you teased me a little bit last night with the notion that you have your own tulpa story. Well, 
I now that you explain it a little bit more, I don't think I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you think? What, well, this is, was. this is Olivia's fault. Um, but oh, I okay. I don't remember if we told you about like my weird uh, stalker thing that I had for a bit. That's right. Savannah had someone who was sort of sending anonymous messages. Yeah, for yeah. a long time, for years, and uh, we never figured out who it was. And Olivia at one point was like, maybe it's a tulpa. And I'm like, what the, what is that? And uh, I looked into it and I'm like, oh my God, I created my own stalker. (laughs) Um, It was really weird. Like they were texting me all the time. And uh, we were, I remember Olivia came over one night and we were all here in my basement using a pendulum trying to figure out things about it. And then it texted my friend Sebastian to stop it. Like, while we were in the middle of doing pendulum bullshit, and um, that was really freaky. And then Olivia gave me this, like, crystal to sleep with that was supposed to, like, help calm my nerves. And then I had it for maybe a couple days before it magically disappeared and is, like, gone forever. But did did you stop hearing from the stalker eventually? Um, yeah, but that was, like, I haven't heard from them in, I think, two years. But they continued after all that. It was weird. We still haven't figured out who it was. Yeah, and you know I know the story, but you know folks, folks listening don't. So the the messages weren't sexual or threatening necessarily, but they could be interpreted that way, right? At first they weren't, um, but then towards the end it did start getting threatening. What well, like give us some examples of some of the things? So they seem to know where you were sometimes. Yes, they definitely... and what you were doing, like yes. the the pendulum experiment. Yeah, well, that was the freakiest example, I think. But there was um, a couple months after the pendulum thing, I was living in College Park and it texted me, like, not my address, but it texted me, like, basically where I lived, like, in Hyattsville. And so that freaked me the, <laughs> freaked me out a lot. Um, and then right before it stopped texting me the final time, I was getting lunch in Annapolis and it texted me, hey, let's get lunch in Annapolis and I was like whoa what the hell <laughs> like it really so it wasn't like I'm gonna get out. you or anything but it was you know threatening in the sense that it, it seemed to know where you were they it yeah. whatever well, at, <laughs> seemed to know where you were when it did it at when I was at my apartment in College Park it um it was texting me stuff from the movie it and then like oh yeah that's so scary it, it was threatening at one yeah, point yeah yeah. Like, it was, like, you'll float, too, and they were sending, like, pictures of dead people, and, like, yeah, it got really weird. I, yeah, I would say that's not a tulpa. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I don't know. Olivia was the one who put that idea in my head, and I didn't do a lot of research into it, so it wasn't... <laughs> I was just, like, an entity you created, and I was like, this thing doesn't seem real, so... But, yeah, I, I mean, think I, it I guess it's conceivable. A tulpa gone crazy. Tulpa gone mad. <laughs> No, I think it might have been an ex-boyfriend, but we don't know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yikes. Even worse. Let's pledge it out. We, the members of the Secret Secret Order Order of Alchemical Actors, actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest honest telling telling of the history history of the the occult occult as far as we know it. Yeah, Savannah is flying solo today, uh, in part because we're we're back to remote recording, and this is just a bit easier for me. Uh, and uh, I decided Savannah would be a good choice for this episode because, as I said to her in an exchange we had last night, uh, she and this is is tough competition among the alchemical actors. But I believe Savannah may be the most pop culture informed of the group. Do you think that's fair, Savannah? I feel like that's 
fair, but also, like, last night when you said that, I was so afraid that I'm like, I'm not going to know anything about what he's talking about tomorrow, <laughs> now that he said that. <laughs> Twin Peaks, X-Files, any of this ring? For, I mean, yeah, you oh, got, I all, most of you guys are youngers, but yeah. yeah. I know X-Files. You know those references. I know of at Twin Peaks, but I haven't seen it, but... That's more Aubrey's thing, yeah. Uh, bronies, you, you, you know what a brony is? Yes, I know what you're, a brony You're familiar is. With, with the little ponies? Yeah, I mean, I remember in high school, I was friends with people who called themselves bronies and so i did watch the show at one point and it's cute it's a good i mean like it was a cute show but like i didn't understand why people were so so into it but i think it was because they were gay and they were in the closet and they weren't ready to come out yet oh so it's a way of expressing that i think so identity that's interesting well, write into us if you disagree with that, I guess. That was interesting. All right, let's well, get into it. Well, they ended up coming uh, out of the closet later, which is why I oh, say that. Well, but... you can't disagree with whether they're gay, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe a way to explore certain uh, gender characteristics. I think that's conceivable. I think there's straight men who are into it, too, though. I'm, I'm yeah, no, I'm not, yeah. Try yeah, I'm not trying to say that. Because, <laughs> I mean, like, it's a cute show. Yeah, it's got huh. some good voice actors on it. Tara Strong's yeah. on it. She's pretty popular. See, you know these things. I don't know these things. I haven't seen My Little Pony since the 80s, so I have I have no concept of what it's... I've seen the illustrations. I know that they look very different than they did in the 80s, but... Yeah. They're a bit more, um, I don't know, Japanified, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Jap a bit more anime. Yeah, they do I look a lot more anime. So um, I'm going to ask you to make any sound you want to open the Order of Confessors. Go. <sighs> Okay, fair enough. Let's welcome some patrons. We have Devin P and single letter R. I'm delighted by R. Welcome R. Uh, Samuel. Welcome both of you. Oh. Not, not, not Samuel, but Samuel. Uh, Samuel A M, Deidre H, Charles J, Thaddeus G, and Emil B. So you thought we were done at two, Savannah? But that's I did. That's our list today. That's awesome. Welcome. I uh, want to acknowledge Katie C for the pledge bump. Get in some uh, some reviews here. We have da 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 dude best podcast ever. Thank you, da 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 dude. <laughs> Shakes fist at the sky is the name of our reviewer, which is delightful. <laughs> Listens to a lot of witchy and magic podcasts. Likes uh, us best. Thank you. Aww, Excited thank every you. time we come out with an episode. And I'm going to guess that when we come out with an episode, Shakes Fist from the Sky puts down the fist. <laughs> right? <laughs> Briefly. Briefly to listen. <laughs> and then puts the fist back up. It's uh, good work you're doing. Yes. Shakes Fist at Sky. Right? I think we all can feel that. We need, we need people out there shaking their fist at the sky. Mm -hmm. Just to make us feel a little better. Ed, uh, let me see, D1OS says we're, or 0S says we're educative, entertaining, and charismatic, coining some terms there, and I love it. Uh, I want to uh, point out to folks uh, that uh, Luke and I appear, appear or uh, I guess you can't appear on an episode in podcast world. <laughs> what is, how do you appear orally? I, <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I think appear is a fine word to use. We feature in uh, episode feature, 111. That would be good. 111 on Black Mass Appeal, our friends over at Black Mass Appeal. And uh, we're uh, posting a, a podca uh, podcast, Patreon podcast special uh, for our patrons on Fallen Angels, sort of a follow up to our appearance on Black Mass Appeal. So do 
check out our friends at Black Mass Appeal. Wonderful folks, interesting folks. Uh, as I like to say, our ideologies do not align exactly, uh, but we can still have a very uh, good conversation. Just goes to show you how far universalism can go as a principle in uh, allowing people to talk across uh, a variety of, of, of backgrounds and thought systems and philosophies. Also, which way, W-I-T-C-H, which way, uh, gave us a shout out, uh, which way is doing a Harry Potter series, which way, uh, you can go to which way official, I think is, is their Instagram handle. Yep. I've got it right here. Uh, and, uh, which way, uh, she does, uh, episodes about, uh, like pop culture, witches. so that's perfect for today's conversation. So check yeah, it out. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, you know, deep digging into, into these different pop culture, witches. all right, let's, uh, and let's close up the order of confessor Savannah. What? Yeah, fine. In and out, same way. Why not? I'm good with it. Let's do the Buddhists. Start with Buddhist tulpas. Now, not Tibetan Buddhists. Buddhists broadly conceived. The tulpas discussed in the Discourse on the Fruits of Renunciation in the Digha Nikaya, or Collections of Long Discourses. The text consists of 34 discourses broken into three categories. The Discourses on the Fruits of Renunciation is the second in the collection in it. The historical king, Ajatasattu, a contemporary of the Buddhas who ruled the Magadha kingdom, asks the Buddha about the benefits of his life of renunciation. The Buddha's response comes in three parts. Number one, moral practices. Number two, mental cultivation. And number three, discernment of knowledge. The tulpa, or mind-made body, comes up in the second section as one of the supernatural powers attained through meditation. That second uh, section, again, is mental cultivation. If you cultivate your mind, you can make a tulpa. Now a monk creates another body from this one, mind-made with all its limbs and faculties. It is just as though a man were to draw a sword out of its scabbard. He might think, this is the sword, this is the scabbard. The sword and the scabbard are different, but the sword was drawn from the scabbard. In just the same way, the monk creates another body from this one, mind made with all its limbs and faculties. This double or replica does exactly as its creator does and can be sent to visit the heavenly realm of Brahma. The Buddha demonstrated this ability by shooting fire and water from opposing parts of his body in what is called the twin miracle. That's pretty badass, am, am I right? Yeah, like out of his hands or... Uh, it's just it just says out, out of opposing parts of his body. So I, it could be, I guess, his head and his feet or yeah, I guess it could be <laughs> left and right hand. Yeah, That's pretty be, cool, though. Yeah. After this elemental display, the Buddha produced a double. Here comes the tulpa. Akin to the mind-made body is the power to multiply. I'm quoting here. Being one, he becomes many. Being many, he becomes one. In an alternative vision of the twin miracle, the Buddha filled the sky with doubles of himself. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> That's not as cool. <laughs> That's just a little scary. <laughs> There's a lot of Buddhist art that has all the, uh, you know, uh, bodhisattvas and, and Buddhas in the sky. Uh, I've got some in my, my office, actually. The hmm. monk can also achieve the power to fly, walk on water, and pass through solid objects, among other things, through mental, co uh, mental cultivation. Furthermore, 
It is possible to transform into other shapes and to conjure animate and inanimate forms. A monk may, for example, create an entire army complete with chariots and horses. That's pretty cool. These various entities, the mind-made body, the immense uh, emanated objects and beings, are all under the creator's control, and so do not correlate easily with the Western world's 21st century tulpa. Uh, but we're going to try to bridge the ideas uh, through theosophy, specifically a conversation of thought forms. Does that bring any video games or anything to mind, Savannah, being able to like just conjure an army out of your mind? It's very Dungeons and Dragons-y, I isn't was, it? I was just thinking it's Dungeons and Dragons. Um I've been, there is this um, one spell called Invoke Duplicity where you literally create like a second version of yourself. And then, I mean, I don't, I think it's an actual spell. They use it a lot on Critical Role, which is where I've been watching it or seeing that spell. I don't normally play clerics, but, um, but yeah. Oh, like, clerics, the healers, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I only know this through RPGs. I am not a Dungeons and Dragons person, although I do not shame any of you Dungeons and Dragons people. That's not Many true. Of the He's actors shamed are. us. I used to He's shame you, but us. I can't shame you publicly. Uh, <laughs> but I do know through, you know, I don't know, like Dark Souls and stuff, I'm aware of these various roles. So the, the healers in these games are the ones who are capable of, of producing doubles. Yes. Um, yeah, that's interesting. As far as I know... I haven't played very high-level characters, unfortunately. Um, I haven't seen wizards or sorcerers do invoke duplicity, although I'm sure they can eventually. But yes, um, Jester the Cleric does it all the time, and it's like what you were describing. I was thinking of her. Let's get into theosophy. Talking about some thought forms. To get closer to our modern concept of the Tulpa, we have to turn to Western occultism. Annie Besant, widely regarded as Helena Blavatsky's successor in the Theosophical Society, and C.W. Ledbetter, who traveled with Henry Alcott through Sri Lanka and wrote over 60 books, mostly on theosophical subjects, they were among the first to articulate a theory resembling the Western notion of Tulpas in a book they co-authored on thought forms. Thought forms sort of reminds me of color forms. Did you ever have color forms as a kid? I don't know. They, uh, you know, you, you cut them out and you can, you know, slap them on things. Color I, forms. You know, like things you, you no. put them on your fridge, they just stick to stuff. No. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. They're like about. a plastic, you know, pla they're plasticky, but they're sticky. Not, not really sticky. Because <laughs> they're hard to describe. Like, like you can easily wheel? peel them on and off. Well, what's that? Oh my god. <laughs> um, color wheel is like it's a circle that has all the different colors on it and you can like it shows you which colors are like complementary and which are No, it's nothing like that. It's nothing to do with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they stick. They stick to things. You know, you can put anyway. Th thought forms are you, you get like a little scene and you could stick the, you know, things on the scene. You get your my little ponies and you could set them up in a little scene and you can peel them on and off and they they move real easy. That sounds a little bit familiar. Yeah. Oh, well, I tried. Thought forms, mm -hmm. my 80s kids are, and early 90s kids are shouting at their devices. Thought See, forms are. She doesn't are, know pop culture. <laughs> she, you don't, you don't, I guess you don't know my childhood, but I, you can be forgiven for that. You are uh, the next childhood down the line, so. 
Thought forms are independent entities created by our minds through the combination of what we might call ether and our own mental and emotional astral body. By ether, Besant and Ledbetter meant, and I'm quoting here, the elemental essence, that strange half-intelligent life which surrounds us in all directions, vivifying the matter of the mental and astral planes. Our thoughts gather this matter, that's me now, around themselves to assume form, becoming a kind of living creature with the thought itself as the soul and the elemental essence as the body. So your thought uh, gathers this ether around it. Our Are thoughts you saying ga- that like they can actually literally see the person or is it? Yeah, like- the thought is taking on form in the world. Okay. Well, it's not a person. It's an entity, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a thought entity, and it's 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 taking on an independent existence. They say our thoughts gather around us and color our impression of the world we encounter, such that until we can control our thoughts and feelings, we are always misled by our own thought forms. That's kind of deep. No, yeah, I was about to say that sounds accurate. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's all about subjectivity. We're there. Our thoughts do sort of stand between us. I mean, I don't think there's any way to con- to cure the fact that our thoughts stand between us and the world, but. The nature of the thoughts that we have determines how we encounter the world. Yeah. I mean, the first step to dealing with a problem is acknowledging that you have one. So if we can at least acknowledge (laughs) that our thoughts grew our perception of everything, we can try and see through that. I I mean, I, I don't know how often I teach you guys this, but in my personal life, I'm often telling people that... There's often nothing. There's most situations. There's nothing you can do about the situation, but there are. There's a lot you can do about the way you feel about the situation or the way you think about it. Very That's cool. good existentialism right there. I have taught you guys this stuff. <laughs> Man, the thinker is clothed in a body composed of innumerable combinations of the subtle matter of the mental plane. This body, being more or less refined in its constituents and organized more or less fully for its functions according to the stage of intellectual development at which the man himself has arrived. The mental body, focused on pure and sublime topics, is the highest order of being within the individual. So we have a mental body. That's what we're going to focus on. At its highest functioning, this body is iridescent and full of color. A color wheel, you might say, Savannah. (laughs) The body (laughs) throws off a vibrating portion of itself, which collects matter from the surrounding atmosphere that aligns with the fineness of the mental body itself. This second body or thought form can be used as a most potent agent when directed by a strong and steady will. So now we're taking control of our thought forms and telling them to do things. Below the mental body is the desire body, which is focused on passional and emotional activity. The more the individual focuses on the needs of the desire body, the more they take on hues of brown, dirty greens, and reds. Dirty greens, I guess, are just like greens, but more perverse. Now, I can see exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like swampy. <laughs> Swampy, yeah, but in a sexy way. The the desire body. Like Shrek. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Got a peek under Savannah's surface there. No. That was a meme. I'm sorry. I take it back. Oh, oh, oh. What do I know? Okay. The desire body can throw off its own thought form doubles, which exist at this lower vibration and function as artificial elementals, giving form to particular wants and emotions. So we can also theoretically control these guys 
um, you know, but they're not uh, of a higher order of, of thought. Thought forms are often not as simple as being of one kind or another or directed to one desire or another. I love this because I think this is just reality. You can't say, you know, there's this desire body and this mental body and some things belong to the mental body and some things belong to the desire body. A lot of existence is between the higher mental, spiritual, and, you know, our lower emotional, passional, right? Like, things are a blend. Yeah. Only a Sith deals in absolutes, so. I'm delighted. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, we can agree with Star Wars. <laughs> Like the thought thoughts from which they manifest, uh, the thought forms are often complex and multicolored. The quality of a thought determines the color. Uh, also, the content of the thought uh, determines its form. Oh, so whether it's more passional or, or more mental or the blend of passion and mental, that's the color it's going to be. And then what it's about is the form of the thing. You got me? I Yes. So if you're thinking about sex on a higher plane... Uh, then you might have, you know, like a red, you know, sexy, swampy green, but also a little iridescent color, you know, because it's blending those two. But, you know, and it's it's just like, uh, you know, boobs and a penis. That's the form. Okay. You got me? Okay. All right. <laughs> so uh, if you're thinking about a pony, I don't want to get into that. Okay. So, um... <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> well, my first example, I think, is, is probably more tame than where we could have conceivably gone from it. If you're thinking about Shrek, no. no, 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 no. I was about to say we could talk about Shrek. <laughs> Let's just stick with genitals. It's safer. It's cleaner. Okay. <laughs> where were we? Okay, so the content determines its form. Uh, quality determines its color. The definiteness of the thought determines its clarity. So, uh, in other words... If you're thinking, you know, about Shrek, you know, real, in a real focused and concentrated way, then you're going to get a real clear thought form that looks like Shrek. But, you know, if you're thinking about Shrek a little bit, a little bit about ponies, then you're going to get kind of like a murky Shrek. You're not going to see him quite so clearly because you're not focused. It'll be like a pony, but with their little symbol on their butt being an onion. (laughs) Maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. I guess uh, this is not really a trigger warning, but a content warning. You should, I guess, watch at least the first Shrek before enjoying this episode. <laughs> so, content warning. <laughs> I, sounds I, like, it sounds like yeah, like a yeah. A trigger warning. <laughs> it does. You sound, mean yeah. spoiler alert? <laughs> well, it's like the opposite of a spoiler. It's like if you want to appreciate what the hell we're talking oh, about, okay. you should have at least seen Shrek. <laughs> you don't need to watch a My Little Pony though, but you should know what a My Little Pony is. So Google it. Okay. <clears throat> This is too late, though, so (laughs) go back now and enjoy. Strong, clear thoughts travel further than weak, undecided ideas. You can also make your clear Shrek, you know, go like a mile to, you know, send a message to a friend. But your murky pony Shrek, he's not going very far. As they travel... because it's a combination of things, so it's not as powerful? Well, and it's murky. You're just not focused. It's about your focus and concentration. If you can't focus on one thing, you can't really project it very far. As the thought travels, it influences the people around the thinker, elevating the thought of others, if the projected thought form is of an elevated form, that is. A man thinking keenly upon some high subject pours out from himself vibrations which tend to stir up thought at a similar level in others, but they in no way suggest to those others the special subject of this thought. 
Thought forms dissolve unless they can inspire and connect with a sympathetic vibration. In that case, the mental body absorbs the thought form, causing the second individual to have the same exact thought. So let's go back to Shrek. Suppose Savannah is sending me, you know, a very clear, strong Shrek. <laughs> He's not a sexy Shrek. He's a neutral Shrek, but he is a Shrek nevertheless. <laughs> what? What are you going to say? You're going to get yourself in trouble. Yeah, I know. I am. <laughs> I'm just sticking up for all the people that think Shrek is sexy. Okay, yeah, that's you're welcome to have that. We don't shame any of that here. I, that's true. <laughs> Whether it's My Little Pony or Shrek, you do you, and we are not judging. <laughs> so, where were we? Okay, so, so Savannah sends me a really good, clear Shrek. Then Shrek is going to color my thought forms. I'm going to take on Shrekness in my thoughts. <laughs> and then we can sort of spread the thought forms around. Like, I could then project it, or, you know, Savannah could project it to the whole alchemical actor crew. Then we have, like, 18 people having Shrek thoughts. You got me? <laughs> this is conceivable. Or pony thoughts or whatever. Uh, for this reason, having a mind focused on higher things repels maleficent thought forms uh, from any plane of being. If the thought comes from a living person, it can be reflected back at them. So this is the thing. If I don't want to have Shrek thoughts and I have a strong, concentrated mind, I'm over here, you know, thinking um, strong. What else? What have we talked about? What else we talk, what could I be thinking about, Savannah? Thinking strong. Uh, uh, Donkey was my first. <laughs> oh, for the love. We're still in Shrekland. I need to get out of Shrekland. What did I... Oh, I'm thinking about color forms. I'm thinking strongly oh, yes. about my color forms from the 80s. My My Little Pony color forms. That's what I'm thinking about. Uh, my my He-Man color forms and how I put them together. I'm thinking about that. And Savannah is sending me the Shrek thought. It'll bounce off of me because my mind is so focused on my color forms. My 80s color forms. So Got will me? I then start having? Well, you're already having Shrek ones? thoughts. Shrek will just come okay. back at you and be like, "Rob's not uh, available." Yeah. Oh, damn it, Rob! <laughs> <laughs> so there are three classes of forms that thoughts can take. The first is—I know this is a lot of categorization, but I hope we're making this fun. The first is a double. The body of the thinker projected in the astral plane. If I think about being another place or wish to be someplace, I can conjure my own thought form in that place I want to be. So, you know, if Savannah and I are like, it's really hard podcasting remotely, let's do this together in the park. We can project, uh, okay, so, but we don't want to be physically together because of Omicron. We can project our thought form to the park, and then we just sit there and podcast. Why don't we do that? I, well, <laughs> next time, next time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you make uh, it sound so easy. Right? You just project your astral body. No problem. <laughs> This form can be perceived by a sufficiently clairvoyant perceiver, or if the desire is strong enough, the form can make itself seen by everyone present. So depending on how good we are at this, it could be that, you know, someone who's just sensitive can see it. But if we're really good at it, we can get everybody to see it. Okay. Maybe sometimes when you go to a party, somebody who's there isn't really there. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. We, we can similarly create forms of other people by thinking of them or of objects. Novelists talk about characters taking on the lives of their own because of the way other minds, elementals, and spirits on the astral plane interact with thought forms generated by the living writer. So here's where we get to our ponies and our Shreks. Now you can create these, you know, entities that aren't you. The painter who forms a conception of his future picture builds it up out of the matter of his mental body and then projects it into space in front of him keeps it before his mind's eye, 
and copies it. The third form is created by the thoughts themselves, often of a more amorphous mental or emotional nature. For example, an actor waiting to go on stage in her first performance of a play may have a zigzagging striped or and orange energy emanating off of her, indicating her confidence in her performance. But it is surrounded by bands of gray, indicating her uncertainty over how the play will be received by the audience. I know that sounded very specific. I took it directly from Bassant and Ledbetter's book. They have all these images of different kinds of thoughts people can have and what the shapes and colors of the thoughts would be. That's cool. So that's what an actor looks like, thought form-wise. Pretty cool? Or not cool? Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I said that's... I, sorry, you must not... I was uh, like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. that sounds accurate. It's... It's so nerve-wracking when you go on stage for the first time. But then once you're on stage, it feels fine. Yeah, you've got that ambition, that energy, but there's also, yeah, that, the nervousness. So they capture a lot of these thoughts that are not sort of being consciously projected, but you're having them and they're coloring the space around you anyway. They each have a form in any case. All right, are you ready to go to Tibet? Yeah. Let's do this. With their thought forms, Bassant and Ledbetter express a new iteration of Helena Blavatsky's lifelong project to meld Western occultism with Indian, Indian and Buddhist thought. Although they don't directly reference Buddhism, their mental body and desire body take their inspiration from Blavatsky's tripartite soul, which involves the astral body and the sort of eternal self, uh, which is in turn inspired by Tibetan and Indian religion. Still... Bissant and Ledbetter are only indirectly responsible for ideas surrounding the tulpa. Thought forms may have an independence from their creators, which goes back to our bronies and all that stuff at the beginning, but they are far more ephemeral and amorphous than the intentionally conjured tulpas of our 21st century tulpa mancers. You got me? So is, does that make sense, Savannah? It, we're just not quite to the place where you can have your own, you know friend who hangs out with you and sometimes has sex with you that you imagined into being in your apartment yeah um that's probably for the better <laughs> too maybe well, I, mean, I mean you did say it makes people feel better so but the top i'm talking about the topomancer yeah that's what the topomancer is doing don't get me wrong but i'm saying when we're talking about lead better and besant their thought forms aren't quite there. Like, we may project our astral body, we may imagine a Shrek in, you know, to hang out, but that's, <laughs> the Shrek is temporary, it's gonna maybe, you know, bounce off other people. It can spread around, and, and I think that's the real important thing about Ledbetter and Bassant is that, you know, if you think about, you know, even like dictators, Hitler, or, you know, whoever, these big political figures, they're essentially projecting these strong, powerful thought forms that are bad, but are spreading easily. That's part okay. of the point of the thought. You got me? Yes, I understand now. Uh, but it's still not like you're... It's it's not a conjured golem who hangs out in your apartment. We're still yeah. not there. It's on the way, but it's not there. So we're going to try the Tibetans, is what I'm saying, to see if we can get closer to that. In order to do that, we need to visit a white lady. Uh, because whenever we're talking about a Western idea that de is deriving from Tibet or from India, there's got to be some some white person, often a white lady, standing in the middle trying to get that idea back and forth. In this case, it's Alexandra David Nayel. She's a Belgian... She's a really cool person. I, I'm not... I, I also don't think any of these people are bad people. Blavatsky, Nayel, uh, I think it's great that they want to bring these ideas over they often acknowledge their sources they're not saying that they came up with this stuff mm -hmm. uh, and in Nael's case she's saying you know this is what i learned from the tibetans so she's a belgian french explorer who 
described creating her own tulpa while she was visiting Tibet. David Nail is generally credited with inventing the term tulpa uh, as a Western transliteration of the Tibetan uh, word sprolpa. Sprolpa. Sprolpa to tulpa. What does sprolpa mean? Uh, essentially, it's a, a similar idea, but oh, you know, okay. we'll, we'll get into what she experienced in Tibet as the sprolpa. Nayel had begun practicing an ascetic lifestyle in an imitation of Catholic saints before she went to Tibet. This is when she was a teenager. And she was first introduced to Helena Blavatsky's teachings at the Theosophical Society when she was 18 years old. Uh, after visiting England, Spain, and Switzerland... Uh, on her own. So she visited the Theosophical Society while she was on this wild world tour. She's 18 years old and she's visiting England, Spain, and Switzerland all by herself. I think that's that's pretty bold. Yeah, that's super bold. I went to she, Disney World by myself for the first time ever and I thought that was bold. <laughs> so <laughs> this heavily cultivated tourist experience. Yeah, you're not like on your own in a Swiss train, that's true. No. I th but, you know, I travel by myself for conferences even, and, you know, I, I'm a man in the world, which, you know, well, let's be honest, is a different experience than a woman in the world who has different concerns, especially walking around in strange places at night. Uh, and, and I often feel like, yeah, whoa, I'm out here. I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, she traveled to Benares, uh, now known as Varanasi, where she met the ascetic guru Swami Bhaskarananda Saraswati and converted to Buddhism at the age of 21. She became an opera singer and performed until 1904, the year she married Philippe Neel de Saint-Sauveur. She left again for India in 1911, promising to return to Philippe in 19 months. Get this? They would not be reunited until 14 years later. May oh. 1925. Yeah, so you say to your husband, Hey, honey... I, I have, I'm doing this trip. I'll be back in 14 months. I'm going to Disney World to do some ex exploring. I'll be back in 14 months and you, uh, or 19 months. So, you know, like a year and a half and you're gone for 14 years. <laughs> Wild. Damn. That was an expensive trip. <laughs> well, well, it's Tibet. Yeah, yeah. If you're in Disney World for 14 <laughs> years, yeah, you better take out a loan. Nael funded her explorations with her own personal fortune and spent a considerable amount of time living and writing in Tibet. In 1924, she traveled to the forbidden city of Lhasa, which was off limits to foreigners, uh, because she, the way she got in was she disguised herself as a beggar. After two months traveling around Lhasa, though, she was found out because she was too clean. She bathed in the river daily, uh, and so she didn't look like a beggar. She was a clean hmm. beggar, uh, <laughs> and so she fled before she could be captured. The accounts that she returned with were published in 1927, uh, and they included stories of monks' levitations, control of their bodily temperature, uh, and these, these stories amazed her readers, uh, and, and they made skeptics all pissed off. Tales of the Tulpa surfaced in, uh, a few years later in her book Magic and Mystery in Tibet, Okay, uh, I got Savannah here, so she's going to go ahead and, and give us our David Nail quote. All right, Savannah. I shut myself in psalms and proceeded to perform the prescribed concentration of thought in other rites. After a few months, the phantom monk was formed. His form grew gradually fixed and lifelike looking. He became a kind of guest living in my apartment. I then broke my seclusion and started for a tour with my servants in tents. The monk included himself in the party. 
The features which I had imagined when I was building my phantom gradually underwent a change. The fat, chubby-cheeked fellow grew leaner. His face assumed a vaguely mocking, sly, malignant look. He became more troublesome and bold. In brief, he escaped my control. Once a herdsman who brought me a present of butter saw the tulpa in my tent and took it for a live llama. I ought to have let the phenomenon follow its course, but the presence of the unwanted companion began to prove trying on my nerves. It turned into a day nightmare. Moreover, I was beginning to plan my journey to Lhasa and needed a quiet brain devoid of other preoccupations, so I decided to dissolve the phantom. I succeeded, but only after six months of hard struggle. My mind creature was tenacious of life. There is nothing strange in the fact that I may have created my own hallucination. The interesting point is that these cases of the materialization, others see the thought forms that have been created. This was not Nael's first experience with a tulpa in Tibet, but it was the most powerful since she had created it herself. Before making her own double, she'd seen a painter attended by the ghastly form of a being that resembled the creatures he put into his art. In this case, the painter was unaware of the phantom following him and seemed to have created it unconsciously. Imagine that. People being followed around by their paintings. That's like me and my stalker. Yeah, I guess that's what Olivia was getting at there. Uh, you know, I'm thinking uh, some of our Instagram people make some scary stuff that they post. Yeah. I'd be I following them around. <laughs> I mean, imagine Munch being followed around by just a scream all the time. Yeah, right? <laughs> It's just a very sad, surprised, upset-looking entity just sort of lingering <laughs> around behind him. But they didn't know. So no, it was no like... yeah. Somebody would be like, hey, there's this weird... Did you know that guy is back there? Uh, screaming? There's a screaming man back there. Or something. <laughs> really I don't know quiet, if it's a man. Though. Something back there. He's a quiet, screaming thing back there. <laughs> it's weird. In another instance, a llama had intentionally made a tulpa who resembled him much like a, a double. These uh, beings can be dangerous because, Nail says, they assume a life of their own once they've attained an adequate amount of vitality from their creator. Polling the Tibetans about this phenomenon, Nail heard various explanations. Some believe that the tulpa had an actual physical presence. Others argued that it was purely psychic and appeared to others because of the way it impressed itself on their minds. Sort of like Meyer's theory of the phantasm of the living, but I think also a little bit like our Shrek that goes around influencing other people's minds if they're not busy thinking about color forms. Nail's tulpa was a product of her extensive travel and study in India and Tibet, but also her reading in theosophy and Western occultism. Basant and Ledbetter's thought forms, as I'm saying, are recognizable, if fairly exaggerated, in Nail's Little Monk. In his article from 2016 on the vogue for Tibetan-style tulpas in postmodern Western esotericism, Ben Joff argues that Nail's tulpa experience was idiosyncratic and heavily filtered through her own Western perspective, but also not entirely off the mark. Tibetan practice involves meditators animating mind-created entities while in a trance state. These entities, or yadams, are meditational deities who the practitioner draws near to themselves in order to receive their blessing. So you sort of like focus on a god or a deity, and you have the deity appear to you and come near you and bless you and elevate you spiritually. You got me? Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, sure, I mean, we can see some of this thought form tulpa stuff albeit in a very different context. 
Nayal's tulpa may have been based in Tibetan-style meditation, but it did not match the complex theological role that tulpas play in the life of the believer. The Dalai Lama, for example, is believed to be an emanation of Chen Redzig, the Tibetan bodhisattva of compassion. He said uh, that he may himself emanate his next incarnation while he is still alive. Think about that. The Dalai he... Lama can tulpa himself into his reincarnation. That, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Kind of. I mean, it's not exactly a tulpa, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, he can project himself into the next. And, and that's important politically. Let's bear this in mind because the Chinese communists who have taken over Tibet and the, Tibet, the Dalai Lama is in exile... They've said they're going to name the next Dalai Lama, which essentially mm -hmm. means the Dalai Lama is going to be a, a political tool of the communists. Yeah. So the, the Dalai Lama is saying, screw that. I'm going to go ahead and reincarnate myself. Yeah. What, what are you going to do about that? And nobody's going to believe them over the word of that actual Dalai Lama. Right. Spiritual leader. Uh, he's trying to work around this problem of when he dies, you know, who gets to name his successor. He's just going to do it himself. It would be inaccurate to call our modern concept of the tulpa in any sense Tibetan, but it would also be dishonest to say that Tibetans had no role in its creation. The tulpa is at heart a Buddhist idea, just as much as it is a theosophical concept. Both schools of thought promote the notion that we as individuals possess a psychic essence that can be controlled by our minds. This essence may be the very same doppelganger that haunted Percy Shelley and conjured objectively perceptible apparitions in Phantasms of the Living. We need not believe that there is anything supernatural about our 21st century tulpamancers to wonder whether our thoughts truly do take on their own energy outside of ourselves, or whether a Westerner in Tibet was followed by one such day nightmare long enough to decide that she needed to consciously dispel it. That's what I have to say about tulpas. Any final thoughts, Savannah? I am just very overwhelmed right now. <laughs> 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 well, those bronies are, are deeper than you thought <laughs> yeah and no, not it's... all bronies create tulpas i mean to be very clear about this it's just a phenomenon associated with bronies <laughs> i mean it's if you just have a really really it sounds like if you have a really strong imagination it can just bring it to light like i i have this maladaptive daydreaming thing that i do that sounds kind of like tulpas except i don't ever physically see anything so it's like i'm not strong enough but <laughs> what do you mean what, what, do you, what happens um i in my own like i create this like own little world that i like can drift off into like i i daydream a lot and i'm a very visual daydreamer so like when i do that i can like kind of see the world and it feels real but in my head i always know that it's not real and that like i have full control over it Kind of thing. I'd associate that with a kind of like a phenomenon of genius. Uh, I'm not trying to stroke your ego here, but oh. <laughs> you know, certain folk like Blake and, and some poets and stuff said they could project a world and see it and see themselves in it, and that's how they created their art. Oh, so the ability to enter well, subconsciously into that world deeply is uh, is a good skill. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, a, I, it's not a tulpa thing, but I, I think no. it's I think it's maybe thought for me. Sure. I mean, when I direct, that's how I come up with a lot of my scenes. I think it works. I think it's a, a, a functional tool for, for making art, for sure. I, I think it's it, folks, even like scientists and stuff, some folks have this skill of, of um, uh, it's sort of like elaborate hallucinations almost, or like cogent hallucinations. Yeah, and that's what at least the 21st century Tolpa Mansers, that's what it sounds like to me, 
is them just very actively daydreaming this thing into being, which is basically what it is, right? I mean, you just sit there and think about it until it happens. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, uh, real quick before you leave, um, it reminded me that it feels like tulpas are a thing that people are trying to do on TikTok now, too. Oh, yeah. It has become a TikTok-y thing. Yeah, like, apparent. I mean, like, it seems like people are doing it more so with, like, fictional worlds, more so like the maladaptive daydreaming that I was talking about. But apparently kids are, like, living in this shit. Living so. in the tulpa? Living with the tulpa? Yeah, and the like they get depressed when they have to come back out into the real world and stuff. So, Oof. I mean, I don't I'm not on TikTok anymore. I erased it for my own mental health. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just was it was too much to look. I mean, during quarantine all you did was look at it. So, I was like, I had to erase it. But I mean, yeah. I guess it's it's kind of a flip then. It's not bringing the thing from the imaginary world into this world. It's bringing yourself into the imaginary world. Is that right? Yeah. That's what it seems like to me. Um, so it's not exactly tulpa, but it feels like it's kind of the sa- along the same lines. Hmm. That's which is something interesting. interesting to look into. Yeah, maybe we'll do a little Patreon something something. You want to bring us on home? Uh, I hereby adjourn and close this meeting of the alchemic. Oh my god, I don't. Remember. You're so close. You're so close. You're I'm... getting there. Don't stop yourself. Trust. Trust yourself. <laughs> What what is the Star Wars pet Padawan 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 trust trust your heart trust I don't know. in the force Tr- do, do, go ahead do the thing uh I hereby in a journ no okay and declare close this yes. meeting of Al- and declare close this meeting of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again our sources today include Annie Besant C W Ledbetter's uh, thought forms Alexandra David Nail magic and mystery in Tibet David Fiordalis miracles and superhuman powers in South Asian Buddhist literature PhD dissertation from the University of Michigan Ben Joff's paranormalizing the popular through Tibetan tulpa. Uh, and that is in Savage Minds. And Nathan Thompson's The Internet's Newest Subculture is all about creating imaginary friends. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, joined by our sister of the 84th degree, Savannah Verrett. Bye, everyone. Next time on Occult Confessions, we are going to talk about soul photographs and get into Reichenbach's phenomenon and auras and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, So stay tuned. There will be more doppelgangers, more thought projections to come here on Occult Confessions.